0: We're in Mark chapter 15. If you'd like to open your Bible there or navigate on your device, Mark 15, verses 16 through 22 is going to be our text. The topic, Simon of Cyrene has his life transformed after being conscripted to carry the cross of Jesus Christ part of the way to Calvary. The title of our message, Sinful Simon Met the God-Man Going to the Cross. What? (laughs) Let's pray together. Lord, your word is unlike any other writing. It's alive. It's powerful. It divides between the soul and the spirit in the deepest part of what we would call our heart. It reveals God to us. It shows us Jesus Christ. We see ourselves, and we desire to be more like Jesus because of what we see and the disparity. And I pray that we would learn some things about this event in the life of Jesus, but that we would also see its application for us today, and that we would be incredibly strengthened by it. Fill us with your spirit, and may he attend this teaching and be our teacher, we pray. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agree to amen. When Sean Connery in The Untouchables derides his attacker for bringing a knife to a gunfight, He doesn't realize it's an ambush. Moments later, he's sprayed with machine gun fire. Superior weaponry isn't always obvious. And that's nowhere more true than in what we refer to as spiritual warfare. I would go so far as to say we almost wonder, if not worry, if our spiritual weapons are really up to the task. Part of our confusion has to do with our understanding of what constitutes victory. In spiritual warfare, victory can look an awful lot like defeat. If a believer is persecuted for his or her faith and then martyred, praising Jesus with their final breath, is that a defeat or is it a victory? Well, it's a substantial victory in terms of spiritual warfare, even though it appears to the non-believing onlooker to look like a total defeat. Mark is moving closer to the cross upon which Jesus will die. First, he recalls the Roman soldiers mocking the Lord and beating him and spitting upon him. It was part of the spiritual warfare Jesus was waging against his enemies. Despite appearances that he was being defeated, Jesus was victorious over this entire garrison of soldiers. Spiritual warfare and its weapons and its warriors will be our theme as we work through these verses. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, Jesus demonstrates the weapons available to you in spiritual warfare. And number two, Jesus identifies the warriors available to him in spiritual warfare. First of all, let's take a look at our weapons in verses 16 through 20. If you're a movie fan, in the Avengers, Thor's brother Loki is captured by Captain America and Iron Man. Turns out that he let himself be captured so that he'd be taken to the hovercraft to be on board to aid in its destruction and the downfall of the superheroes. Jesus was captured by the Roman soldiers and by the Jewish temple guards. He let himself be captured because he was on his way to the cross to destroy the works of the devil and to conquer sin and death. Jesus had a single objective his entire life, To die on the cross as God's final sacrifice for the sins of the world. In the Gospel of John, talking to his heavenly father about the cross, Jesus said, for this purpose I have come to this hour. It's a strong statement that to go to the cross is what Jesus was born for. He was born to die on the cross. It seems in regular warfare, there's always a heavily defended hill that needs to be conquered. Heartbreak Ridge comes to mind for those who remember the Korean War. Hamburger Hill in Vietnam is another example. Jesus' objective involved conquering a hill. As we'll see, the hill was called Calvary. To get there, Jesus would have to go through the Roman soldiers holding him. He'd have to survive, first, their scourging, which he had done, and second, their mocking, which we see here. And so we pick up the story in verse 16. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison. One of the commentators I consulted, who seemed familiar with the Roman customs of the day, insists that this treatment of Jesus was somewhat unprecedented. It wasn't how Romans normally treated a prisoner in their custody who was on his way to be crucified. Mark says the whole garrison was involved. The overkill is another clue that something more, something sinister was going on. It's not a stretch to say that Satan was inspiring them to mock and mistreat the Lord. For one thing, the Bible says that non-believers are taken captive by Satan to do his will. It doesn't mean they're possessed. That You don't need to be demon-possessed in order to be prompted by the devil to accomplish his will. If that's the case, what was the devil's objective here? Well, he may have been coming at Jesus hard in order to convince the Lord to say no to the cross. Three and a half years earlier, after Jesus stepped forward to begin his public ministry, Satan had tempted him in the Judean wilderness. One of his temptations was to offer Jesus all of the kingdoms of the world without having to go to the cross. He said, if you'll just worship me, Jesus, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Uh, And it's implied that he would then not have to die on the cross uh, for the sins of the world seems likely that the devil would again tempt to derail Jesus from going to the cross. He may have thought Jesus was at his most temptable on account of the things Jesus had recently said out loud. The devil had heard Jesus plead with his father in Gethsemane three times asking him to take from him the cup of suffering. And the devil had heard Jesus tell Peter as he was being arrested that he had at his disposal 12 legions of angels who could at any moment be called upon to put an end to his suffering. And so perhaps the devil thought he could push Jesus' buttons this time. He was at the verge of the cross, concerned about its tremendous suffering, with this option of calling angels to aid him, And he could derail Jesus from going to the cross. It's my conjecture, but I think that's what he was doing, trying to get him to abandon his life's mission. That he could break him, as it were, through psychological and physical torture. You know, action movies always have a torture scene where the villain tries to break the hero. After beating him mercilessly, they pull out some psychological torture like threatening to kill innocent family members or other innocent individuals. Mark 15 verse 17, then they clothed him with purple and they twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, mocking Jesus as king of the Jews. Certainly a physical torture for sure, but it was also a psychological torture. After all, Jesus was the king of the Jews and he was more than that. He was and is king over everyone and over everything. It was a genuine temptation for him to end his suffering by acting as king, perhaps calling on the 12 legions of angels for an airstrike to deliver him. So they dressed him as the king. They addressed him as the king, but in a mocking way. And it would have been a solid temptation for the Lord to say, Hey, you know what? I am the king. If you only knew what I could do right now, I'm at the end of my suffering. I'm going to take it upon myself to deal with this. But he didn't. Verse 8, they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. The verb tenses that are used indicate this went on for quite some time. They began to do this to Jesus, and they kept doing it for as long as he was in their care. Uh, Verse 19, then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him, and bowing the knee, they worshipped him. Mark is very matter-of-fact in his presentation of this torture. He's methodical. It almost lacks emotion. Sometimes the facts themselves evoke more emotional reaction than a visual representation. We say that a picture is worth a thousand words, but sometimes a few words can give you a much more chilling description than a picture. I was watching In the Heart of the Sea, the recent Ron Howard-directed film that purports to tell the true story uh, that inspired Herman Melville to write Moby Dick. They got to the point where it was time to reveal that the open ocean survivors had to resort to cannibalism. Instead of showing anything, one of the characters dispassionately described the proper procedures for cannibalizing a human being. I didn't even know there were proper procedures for cannibalizing a human being. But he goes through it very methodically, and it was so creepy, it left me sick to my stomach. Far worse than actually seeing anything like that happen. And so make no mistake... Mark doesn't get into too much detail, but Jesus is being tortured. Verse 20. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. They had dressed Jesus as the king of the Jews, and now they put his human clothes back on. It was symbolic of his victory over the soldiers. Instead of taking up his deity to save himself, represented by the kingly clothing they addressed dressed him in, Jesus went forward clothed as a man onward up the hill to Calvary. When they put his clothes back on, Jesus sealed the victory over those soldiers. They had failed to accomplish Satan's purpose to get him to act as king. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think Satan is stupid? Well, clearly he's not stupid. Twisted, hateful, vicious, yes, malevolent for sure, but not stupid. God had revealed his plan to come into the world as a man and defeat Satan all the way back in the Garden of Eden, and he'd been very open about it throughout the entire Bible. It's a progressive revelation, but nevertheless, he reveals what he's going to do. Years and years ago, I think I was 17, 18 years old, well, my brothers and I, we got involved in Taekwondo. We studied Taekwondo and we're in the dojo there. And one of, uh, we had an opportunity one year, uh, the grand master of our art came over from Korea, a guy by the name of Pak Bu Kwon. And he's a Korean guy about this tall and he'd been national champion of Korea several times. And so we would spar with him and, um, So you'd spar and you'd try and hit him. You'd try to kick him. You could try to shoot him. And you you couldn't do anything to this. He just very effortlessly would brush you off. And then the most terrifying part of it is that all of a sudden he would say something like, side the kick. And when you were thinking, what? Oh, man. And you were kicked in the side. And he would say something else and you were on the ground. And so he would tell you out of courtesy what he was going to do to you. And then he would do it. And so you didn't have to be a genius to figure out, oh, I wonder if he means sidekick. And, uh, but there was nothing you could do about it because he was just that much better than everybody else. Well, God it was not secret about what he was going to do. In the Garden of Eden, he told Satan, hey, I'm going to come the seed of the woman, born of a woman, the uh, the God-man, and you're going to bruise my heel, but I'm going to crush your head. And then as the Bible unfolds in its progressive revelation, the devil is able to understand more of this plan. And understand that he did, because he immediately incited Cain to murder his brother Abel in an attempt to cut off the godly line that had been promised. Then he incited demons to somehow pollute human genetics by having them marry and mate with human women, producing weird offspring during the time of Noah. The devil tried to have baby Moses killed so that Israel would have no deliverer and so that he could... Uh, destroy the Israelites when the birth of Jesus was announced Satan incited King Herod to have all the young children murdered in an attempt to keep Jesus from accomplishing his mission and so Satan understood that Jesus was coming maybe not everything about it certainly but he was against it from the beginning and I don't think Satan believed he would win if Jesus died on the cross I think the devil did everything he could to stop the Lord from ever getting to the cross, and that included this torture by the Roman garrison. In C.S. Lewis's classic, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I love it, and I'm certainly not criticizing it, but at the end, when Aslan dies in place of Edward, and then he comes back to life, he says it's a deeper magic from the dawn of time that the white witch doesn't know anything about. Uh, And you know what? The gospel message was preached in the Garden of Eden. It's not that Satan didn't know about it. He's not caught off guard by the death of Jesus Christ. He knows that Jesus is coming to die, so he tries to keep him from coming. He tries to kill him prematurely, and then he tries to keep him from going to the cross. And so that's what's going on here. This is warfare. And it's one man, Jesus Christ, filled with the Spirit of God against Satan and his demons And legions of people who are taken captive by Satan to do his will. And Jesus wins. Jesus was victorious because his objective wasn't to escape custody. It wasn't to kill the soldiers. It wasn't to overthrow the Roman Empire. His objective was to get through this torture to the cross, to Calvary, to take the hill. And after this, he was still on mission. Now, we agreed earlier that martyrdom was a spiritual victory. All you have to do is read the story of Stephen in the book of Acts to see that the death of a Christian for his or her faith absolutely defeats the enemy. It's a nuclear option, and Satan has no counter-strategy against it. You and I are probably not going to be martyred. Christians certainly are being martyred all over the world and at an ever-growing rate, but I don't really expect it in my life in America anytime soon. I suppose that could change, But uh, we didn't get up this morning and worry that we were going to be martyred. Now, we can be and we are being mocked and mistreated. I'd go so far as to say we're being psychologically abused by the devil using non-believers, his garrison out in the world. It's a spiritual warfare. And yet our first impulse is usually something carnal like demanding our rights. The minute somebody mistreats me, I want to demand my rights as a human being, as a citizen of the United States, as a member of the church, whatever it would be. I want to invoke my rights. And I attempt to fight the battle with weapons that are similar to those that are being used against me. The early Christians were impressed with how Jesus handled his mistreatment. Peter wrote this, When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Now let me give you a disclaimer. We live in a free society, and we do have civil rights. I'm not advocating that we always abandon them, or I'm I'm not saying that we can never invoke them. I'm not against them. But what I am saying is that our witness and the gospel are more important than our rights. And that means sometimes we need to act and react the way Jesus demonstrated for us when he was tortured by the garrison. We need to take it in a Christ-like manner. Will it appear as though you are being defeated? Yes, it will. But you will be victorious on the spiritual level where things really matter. Whether it's Jesus or Paul or Peter or any of these guys... When you see, we look at them and we see their life, we see them being beaten, we see them being mistreated, we see them being tortured, imprisoned, and we think, praise the Lord for that. And then when we go to work and somebody gets promoted over us, grievance, I'm going to file a grievance right now, I have rights, and I'm going to fight you tooth and nail. Well, you might be led to do that, or you might be led to be more like Christ, The Apostle Paul, in discussing spiritual warfare, said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. When your boss is mistreating you or your friends or family are mocking you, there's something deeper going on behind the scenes. It's spiritual and below the surface. They're being taken captive by the devil to do his will. You can draw from an arsenal of weaponry. God the Holy Spirit lives in you. He can give you peace and patience and perspective as you pray and stand upon the word of God. He can tell you what to say, what not to say, and when to say it or to not say it. Jesus defeated the garrison as a spirit-filled man. So can you defeat your enemies. Maybe this will help. Real spiritual victory is me being Christ-like in the midst of my sufferings. My being worldly is always a defeat even if it seems that I've won on an earthly level. Let's go into our second point, verses 21 and 22, and identify the warriors available to Jesus. Especially in times of war, those in authority have broad powers to conscript people and property. On his way from the praetorium to Calvary, Jesus falls under the weight of the cross he is carrying. A passerby is conscripted into carrying the cross for the Lord. Verse 21, and they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. Now, a condemned man would typically be guarded by four soldiers and preceded by another soldier who would bear a placard stating the crime of which the prisoner had been found guilty. There's some evidence that the soldier with the placard would also shout out the crime as the procession proceeded. The lead soldier might be riding a horse as well, but not always. They would purposely take a long route to the place of crucifixion, winding through the streets. The Romans wanted to instill fear as a deterrent to crime. We can have all kinds of arguments today about deterrence to crime. I'm here to tell you that crucifixion in Roman times was a deterrent to crime. And whenever they had someone to be crucified, they made a big deal about it. Uh, to keep the population under control. The man being taken to his place of execution would be carrying either the whole cross or the cross beam or the upright. The Bible doesn't specify what part of his cross Jesus was carrying, but he was carrying a heavy piece of wood. We're not directly told, but it's safe to assume that he fell under the weight of the cross as he made his way towards the place of crucifixion. He'd already suffered tremendously and was weakened physically. First of all, he'd been awake all night. Second, he'd sweat great drops of blood while praying in Gethsemane, indicating great intense physical stress. He'd been handled roughly at his arrest. He was struck at the house of Annas. He had been struck repeatedly in his trial before Caiaphas. Pilate had him scourged which was a vicious whipping that often left men dead, but certainly meant massive blood loss and shock. The garrison had beaten him for an extended period of time, hitting the thorny crown on his head repeatedly with a solid rod. It's amazing Jesus was still alive, let alone that he could carry the cross any distance at all let alone that he would go on to grapple with dark forces for several hours on the cross. But at that moment, falling under the weight of the cross, Jesus had no human strength. He could go no further. Have you ever felt crushed by the weight of your suffering? I've never suffered like this physically. I mean, I've been in pain. uh, But as far as for the gospel, I've never suffered physically like this. But I've had some times in my life that I would call psychological torment, things that Pam and I have had to go through when you were just absolutely crushed. It it, it sounds funny, but it's like when you're walking down a street and the piano falls on you. In the cartoons, you just get up, you walk around as a pancake for a while, and then you pop back into shape. But in real life, you feel like, that's it, I have been crushed. I can't get up. Lord, I can't get up. There's no getting up from this. There's no recovering from this. It's over. I think some of you understand what I'm talking about. I think some of you have been there. Some of you have also been on the physical side of that as well. Jesus knows what it's like to be absolutely crushed and to be unable to continue his mission. And it could have all ended right there. You know, Jesus can't, he can't just die. He has to die on the cross. And and for a moment, Everything was hanging in the balance. Just when it seemed he would not make it to Calvary, the Roman soldiers leading Jesus to his crucifixion conscripted a passerby to carry his cross. He had so little strength that they didn't even try to make him get up and carry his cross. They knew he couldn't do it. And so they conscripted a passerby. He's identified to us as Simon, a Cyrenian. Now, Cyrene was in northern Africa. Think modern-day Libya. There was a large community of Jews in the region of Africa. The historian Josephus tells us that one of the Egyptian pharaohs sent a number of Jews from Egypt to Cyrene about 300 B.C. in order to strengthen Egypt's claim to the region. And from that initial uh, seeding of Jews, they multiplied. and, And so there was a large Jewish community in northern Africa. Simon may have been on a pilgrimage from Cyrene 800 miles away. If so, he'd been walking for about 60 days in order to arrive on time for Passover. Alternatively, he may have been a local Jew who was distinguished from other Simons by giving his place of origin. Simon was a common name, like John today, and so he would be Simon from Cyrene. He was the Jew who had been displaced or had visited or had moved from Cyrene. We're we're not sure. At any rate, one of the soldiers saw him, went over to him, and they laid their sword on Simon's shoulder, signifying he was being conscripted to help. When the Roman soldier came over and laid his sword on your shoulder, it meant you were being drafted for a few minutes into whatever they wanted you to do. Way to ruin Passover, carrying a criminal's bloody cross to the place of execution for for the oppressing Roman army was on no Jewish person's bucket list. Wasn't something that he was looking forward to that day. The Roman soldier who tapped Simon with his sword certainly seemed in command. But I think with spiritual hindsight, we would say it was God acting providentially. You see how this spiritual warfare works? On the surface, Rome is powerful, authoritative, able to go up to any citizen and tap them with a the sword and say, You're going to carry this man's cross. And any observer would think that Rome was in charge. But as a Christian, Knowing what we know, we understand God's providence was at work. Now, God's providence is simply his providing for his plan of history without violating human free will. And God saw to it, let's say he did come 800 miles, that at just the moment he needed to be at just that place, Simon of Cyrene was there to be called upon to carry the cross of Jesus Christ Because Jesus needed aid to get the rest of the way to the cross. And God brought him that aid. If you're being crushed today, God will aid you. He has the power to carry what you cannot carry. You will have more than you can handle as a Christian, but never more than God can handle. If we pause for a moment, we might recall there were two additional things that Jesus had recently conscripted for his use. On Palm Sunday to make his entry into Jerusalem, Jesus rode a donkey. The disciples were told to go into town where they'd find the donkey tied up outside. And Jesus said, if anybody asks you what you're doing, just tell them the Lord has need of him. In other words, Jesus is conscripting your donkey into his military service. This is a war, and we need this donkey right now. To celebrate Passover with his disciples, Jesus told Peter and John to go into town and find a man carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him home and then tell the master of the house, the Lord is going to have Passover in your upper room. Jesus conscripted that upper room in his fight against the devil on his way to the cross. Those two conscriptions lend credibility to our argument that this was indeed a spiritual warfare with the objective that Jesus take the hill. So much of the Bible really does delineate a warfare. It's not just a small theme in the Bible. There is an absolute warfare going on. From the time God said he was going to crush the devil's head, there has been spiritual warfare. And there are a lot of these images that we pick up on. Now, the encounter changed Simon's life for eternity. We conclude that his life was transformed by Jesus because of the mention of his two sons, Alexander and Rufus. Their names, with no further explanation, tell us they were well-known to the believers who were reading Mark's gospel. It means they were well-known believers to the early church. Sometime before the gospel of Mark was written, Simon received Jesus as his savior, and so did his boys. It was all put in motion by a seemingly random encounter of Simon with a condemned man On his way to be crucified. As I said had he been five minutes earlier or five minutes later. He would have missed this divine appointment. It lends credibility to the statement. There are no coincidences. Now before we leave Simon and Alexander and Rufus. Let me share a couple of facts about them. Though we can't say with 100% accuracy it is the same Rufus, he is mentioned by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans where he says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. If it is the same Rufus, when we see that his mom, Simon's wife, was also a believer and that she had become especially dear to Paul. She was his spiritual mother, as it were. Second, a burial cave in the Kidron Valley discovered in 1941 by E.L. Sukunek... Belonging to a Cyrenian Jew and dating before 70 AD was found to have an ossuary inscribed twice in Greek, Alexander, son of Simon. Now an ossuary is a container in which the bones of the dead are kept, sometimes called a bone box. We can't be certain it refers to the same Alexander, but it's likely that it does. And so we don't need archaeological evidence to prove the Bible, but it's always fun when they find archaeological evidence to prove the Bible. Now, Jesus was pressing forward to the cross, and his father was giving him aid along the way. What looked like an absolute defeat when he fell was really an incredible victory. Not only was he able to go on to the cross, but by his falling, God was able to bring someone else into it to help him whose life was transformed for time and for eternity, whose family was transformed, and who knows what other things were transformed as a result of the witness of those four individuals. Every step, excuse me, every step Jesus took was hard-fought ground that he was conquering on his way up the hill. Verse 22. They brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Now, in the first century, Aramaic was spoken as well as Hebrew and Greek. Golgotha is the Aramaic form of the Hebrew word meaning skull. I keep saying that the hill was called Calvary. Calvary is derived from the Latin word Calvaria, which means skull. So technically, we are Skull Chapel of Hanford or Skull Church. And so next time somebody asks you where you go to church, tell them you go to Skull Church. And that's accurate. We need to work up a bumper sticker or something, right? Now, the name cannot mean that skulls were lying there. Unburied skulls would not be tolerated by the Jews. And the singular number is against it. It was skull, uh, not skulls. And so most probably the name was derived from the shape of the place in that it bore the resemblance of a human skull. In 1842, a German theologian and biblical scholar from Dresden named Otto Fenius was the first to publish a proposal that the rocky knoll north of the Damascus Gate, which as Theneus noticed, resembled a skull, was the biblical Golgotha. The site he suggested is today known as Skull Hill, or more popularly, Gordon's Calvary. While this is the site most accepted by Protestants, we can't be certain there are other suggestions, but it's it's the most likely spot. The biblical wording does suggest Calvary was a hill. It says, to the place Golgotha, and that literally means upon Golgotha. The preposition upon here denotes not direction, but the attainment of a position upon. That means it's consistent with the view that Golgotha was a knoll or a hill that could be seen from afar. Jesus fought His way through a garrison of Roman soldiers and then His own exhaustion to take the hill. We'll see Him successfully complete His mission in subsequent verses of chapter 15. He fully conquers Calvary. Simon of Cyrene was conscripted to be a warrior. It didn't look that way, but it was that way in the spiritual warfare being waged. It establishes that God has at His disposal... Any number of warriors. Simon was n- not a believer at the time. He was a Jew, obviously coming into the Passover season to offer his sacrifice. But he, he wouldn't have been a believer in Jesus Christ, a disciple or a follower. God could nevertheless use him. And in biblical history, you see God moving on the hearts of non-believers from time to time. King Cyrus in the Old Testament comes to mind, who issued a decree allowing the Jews to go back and uh, rebuild the walls in Jerusalem. And so God is able to do that without violating free will. But obviously, God's primary warriors, His number one soldiers, as it were, His special forces, are believers in Him, you and I. He conscripts us into serving Him. Can you think of a time when you were conscripted like that? A special time? You probably can. But in one sense, your whole life ought to be lived as if you've been conscripted to bear the cross, dying to yourself in order to serve the Lord. It isn't a Roman sword, it's the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God that is tapping you and giving you direction and wisdom and insight for whatever your objective might be. I came across this quote, We, followers of Christ, are born conscripted into a spiritual army, drafted by rebirth, a duty mandatory and necessary, but still voluntary. That's heavy, isn't it? Mandatory, necessary, voluntary. We're an odd army, are we not? We're drafted into the army by rebirth. It's a mandatory service. It's a necessary service. But it remains voluntary. How those things work together in any other army doesn't make any sense. But as Christians, we do understand that, because so often we tap out of the battle, or we think that the battle is only uh, that every trial is a battle. Oh, I'm in a battle now, but now I'm resting. Now I have a three day weekend from the battle. When the Bible presents this as an ongoing twenty four seven spiritual warfare, when you're not in a trial, a trial is coming. And you need to be preparing for it. We're always on the Lord's docket as far as soldiers. You're a warrior surrounded by warfare. Spiritual victory can look an awful lot like defeat when, in fact, you are winning hard-fought ground. If Jesus' victory looked like defeat, if Paul the Apostles looked like defeat, if Peter's and all the others and all those that have come before us has looked like defeat, Your spiritual victories will sometimes look like you're being defeated, but it's never a defeat to be like Christ. Let's pray.